Good morning. It is good to see you guys. Let me give you two quick announcements. Uh, the first one, men, next Saturday morning at Moe's Country Kitchen Cafe. Is that what it's called? Country Kitchen Cafe? Yeah, I thought that's right. Yeah, at Moe's here on Main Street, we're having our monthly men's breakfast. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, and then secondly, next Sunday, uh, we will not be gathering here. We will be gathering at uh, the park at the amphitheater right across the way. Uh, turns out uh, if you would like a deal on a, buying a gun, you could come into this building. They'll have a gun show. Uh, and so uh, we'll be gathering over there. Apparently we're having um, bean and cheese burritos from Taco Bell. Because you said... Yeah, breakfast burritos. No, you say we're having burritos for breakfast, and so I think that's what we're going to. Okay, we're going to have some sort of food there in the morning. Uh, apparently, it's going to be breakfast burritos, whatever, whatever that is. And so we'll Google it, we'll figure it out. Uh, but we'll be gathering there. We invite you to, uh, if you would, we're going to be in the amphitheater uh, area. But if you'd like to bring a chair, uh, we encourage you to bring a blanket, maybe. Uh, at this point, it's either going to be 95 or 32. There's no telling. Uh, it'll be either raining or blistering hot outside. So, um, but we want to make sure you know that that's going to be next weekend, uh, and so the 22nd. So, uh, we are so glad you were here. Let's take a moment before we lift high the name of Jesus. Let's stand around. Let's shake some hands. Say it's good to see you.
words are huge. If I'm not dead, then you're not done.
fact is, the gift of your son, Jesus, breaks every chain. Breaks every chain. There's a power we don't fully understand, we don't fully fathom. It's greater than anything that exists. Greater than anything mankind could put its, its confidence in. This power, this all-sufficient sacrifice, God. So God, I pray I pray this morning we just we can't stay still. That is our desire to just move in your presence, not just here on a Sunday morning, but in our journey and our adventures and our lives that you've given us, that we can't sit still. Because it is our desire to live for you. We pray these words right now, Father. We ask you to move in this place. Right here, right now. In every heart, young and old. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And there is power in the name of Jesus. Break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There is power. There is power. There is power in the name of Jesus. 
sufficient sacrifice, so freely given, such a price for our redemption, heaven's gates, hallelujah, they swing wide.
Father, we know that you are here right now. We know that you walk with us daily. I know at times we turn our eyes and we don't see you. I pray that our hearts let go, that we repent, that we want desperately to meet with you daily. our hearts out for yours. We love you. Do this in your sons. Beautiful and holy name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. All right. If you have your Bibles, let's turn two places. We're going to go Exodus 34, and then we're going to go uh, Titus 3. Uh, but we won't be in Titus until almost the very end. And so, um, as you turn in there, I'll tell you, in um, our next book study that we're going to be doing, uh, which will start the first week of December, uh, is going to be through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and as we've been trying to lay that out, I think uh, it'll take us about 12 and a half years to uh, make our way from start to finish in it. Uh, but but I, I love Luke. I think we're going to be able to enter into our Advent season uh, in that gospel because it gives us such an incredible picture of the arrival of, of Jesus and, and the circumstances and the season of which 
uh, he enters into our story. And so uh, that's going to be uh, coming up. And so if you're like, hey, I'm about to uh, start a new uh, book in my own personal time, just know we'll be in Luke um, pretty much forever uh, in the history of our lives. So, um, but, but as we talk about Exodus 34, we've, we've been walking uh, with the Israelites in the book of Exodus as they are, are rescued from slavery in Egypt and, and they're walking with God. Okay, this is important that we would remember this. They are walking with God through the wilderness as they are on their way to uh, the promised land. And, and, and God has brought them in this direction because in this journey, uh, they're going to have the opportunity to hear God speak about his heart for them uh, and, and see God provide for them in, in daily bread and, and giving them the commandments of how to please him in their relationship, but then also how to please one another and as well as he's going to provide this protection for them from invading armies. And, and now over these weeks, we've explored just a lot of promises. In fact, this is our seventh week through the Exodus uh, but we've, we've explored um, just, just how God makes his nearness known to them and how God makes his power known to them. And, and as we live on, on the fortunate side of the cross, I should say, uh, we get the luxury of having even greater promises. Uh, that, that we, in fact, we get greater promises than what the Israelites are experiencing in these pages because of, of Jesus, that in him we have what the Bible says uh, is, is better promises because he secures for us a better covenant. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about more in detail today as we get kind of moving along. Um, last week we saw how the Israelites' heart turned towards Egypt in the making of the, the golden calf. And really all that making that calf was about was this culmination of these really small glances over their shoulders. Uh, as they look back at Egypt and and they start to daydream about life in Egypt and and remember it was the place that was a nightmare for them uh, and so so they start daydreaming about nightmares and and they start to look at God and they say I don't think you're doing this as well as I would like you to uh, and I don't think you're doing this as quickly as I would like you to and so they turn their affections towards uh, a, basically an idol and. And the test of their faith in Moses' absence uh, at, the base of their, uh, at the base of the mountain really just revealed their heart's deeper affections. Uh, in fact, they, despite God's relentless demonstration of faithfulness, they, they placed their hope in an idol, and worse yet, uh, they, they committed their most rebellious act of treason just days after they told God we would be faithful to you and you alone. And in fact, you can go Exodus 24 when they, when they say that. And so, so, but, but as we've seen uh, through our time with the Israelites, and again, uh, I, I've told you this multiple times now, there's not a group in the Bible that irritates me the most, uh, but also not a group in the Bible that exposes me the most. And, and so, but what we've seen in our walk with them is that this wasn't the first time that they'd, they'd lost faith. If you remember, Moses and Aaron come to them and as they've been crying out to God and, 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 and they say, hey, God's told us we're coming out. We're going into freedom. And, and they ex get excited and they start to celebrate and they worship. And then all of a sudden, 
very quickly the circumstances seem to change for them and as, as Pharaoh makes life more difficult and he removes straw from the brick and, and, and their excitement turns to hopelessness and they lose faith. And, and then when, when, uh, when God told them to paint blood on the doorpost uh, during Passover, they, they believed and they obeyed and they were passed over and shortly after when they faced the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is, is at their heels and they lost faith. Faith and but then but then God uh, parted the waters and and as they're on the far side of that sea and they they see their enemies finally defeated and drowned in that sea and and God says you're great your 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 shame will no longer follow you right it's dead in those waters and and they celebrate and 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 then um, they they sang and they danced and they worshipped in faith and then shortly after they go into the barren land where there was, they believed no food and no water, and they lost faith. And on, on the one hand, what you have is, is the Israelites' sin uh, with the golden calf was their worst yet. Uh, but then, on the other hand, it was just their most recent loss of faith. And, and so maybe, maybe you have found yourself in a similar place in, in your own life, that, that, that you've sinned and you've repented and you've promised to obey and then you, you do it again and you wonder the simple question, will I ever change? Is, is there any hope uh, for me? And, and I think that the desperate heart that longs to be free from the bondage of sin needs some hope to hang on to and, and it, needs, it needs some reassurance for the times when progress seems to be painfully slow or, or even at those times when, when progress seems to be moving backward and, and, and so but but with hope I think comes risk and and, and the higher the heart uh, is lifted the farther it can it can fall. And so so the key for us is is where do we place our hope in these moments? Uh, and, and I think too often we, we set ourselves up for uh, disappointment by by placing our hope in the wrong things. Uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. So some some will hope to avoid indulging in sinful desires by simply making themselves busy. If I can just stay busy, then I will avoid sinful desires because, as we know, uh, maybe you can relate um, that boredom can lead us to some really dangerous places. Um, Others are not satisfied with just turning a blind eye to sinful desire. And so, so what they do is they, they dig into this introspection and they, they probe with self-reflective questions and they seek to flush out their idols. Some, some will uh, put their hope in Christian accountability, thinking that as long as other people have eyes on them, uh, then, then they won't stray too far. And, and I, I believe firmly in Christian accountability. I have men in my life who provide that but uh, but what I do know and I think what we can confess here uh, is that a wayward heart is never truly restrained by the accountability of others uh, because if, if all that keeps you from sinning are watchful eyes you typically don't last very long because if, if you want to sin you'll find a way and and then I think you still have others who really just kind of scrap all sorts of accountability and all kinds of, of trying to fight sin, and they just kind of wait for the tides of sin's consequences to come 
crashing in and, and really just force them to change. And, and I think the truth is, and, and this might not be easy for, for us to hear, but, but there, is no, there is no rock bottom uh, when it comes to sin. That, that ultimately what you have is this free fall into a bottomless pit, and it will just keep wanting to devour itself. And, uh, and I'm like, you're thinking, boy, is this going to get anywhere hopeful here in a second? It will, I promise you. Uh, because, because the only way up is to reach out in faith and to take hold of God's rescuing hand. And what's, what's common among these false hopes is that, that we have nothing, that they have nothing to do with who God is. And they have nothing to do with what change He has promised to work in our own lives. That, that every single one of them is an effort to trust in something or someone else. And, and so, so, so it's not hard to identify with the fickle faith of the Israelites. Try saying that 15 times in a row, right? Um, and so, so the question we, we now face is, is, is what hope ensures change what what kind of hope ensures the change that we want because at the scene of the golden calf most of the israelites had this uh what what ends up being a a near miss of of death by wrath that day uh in fact if moses had not interceded for him they would have all perished in fact moses himself had been on this this journey of faith and is and god kind of changing his heart for these people. In fact, you can go way back to chapter 3 um, at the scene of the burning bush, and we see this beginning, the beginning of this progression, uh, that, that Moses had great fear and he had great trepidation in regards to this adventure that God was calling him on. Uh, and, and even uh, as God gives him words of confirmation, and even as God displays his great power, uh, God still remained patient with Moses, uh, because he wasn't really that, that quick. Uh, and so, so when, when we find Moses interceding with Israel, uh, for Israel, in chapter 32, uh, he, in effect, appealed to the same qualities that God has been given him this whole time. That, that he, he appeals and he characterizes mercy and patience. And, and really, it's just the same mercy and patience that, that God has shown him in his own Stubbornness, and so so Moses has changed, and it's it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful transformation because it gives us all hope uh, that if that if Moses can change, then then I can change to the power of God, and so so now he believes, and he believed God's promises, and he knew God's character, and and with the resulting confidence, he makes his appeal, and God relents. Right, that's how we ended last week. That God relented from uh, wiping the Israelites from the map. Uh, and again, we said it would have been perfectly just for God to do so, because uh, he could have still been truthful to his word. He could have created a nation out of the line of, of Moses, and yet Moses appeals for him. And, but then what happens next is, is Moses presses even further. So, so after God relents from destroying the Israelites, and, and then again from abandoning them in the wilderness, Moses makes this, this audacious and yet, so encur- it's such an encouraging request to God. In, in chapter 33, he looks at him and he says, Will you show me your glory? Will you, will you show me your presence? And God looks at him and, 
And amazingly, he says, yes. He says, I'm, I'm going to do this, but we can't do it in the way that you expect. Uh, because, as God says, um, for, for man to see my holiness, he cannot live. And so, so what God does, and it's such a, a beautiful, gracious act, he says, all right, Mo, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in, in the cleft of a mountain. Okay? So it's just kind of this, this kind of a pocket in the mountain. And he says, I'm going to put my hand over your face. And, and as I move by, you're going to see the train of my, the backside of me. Um, and, and so, so he does this. And, and, and there Moses witnesses the grandest display of God's glory yet. But, it, but it's not so much in what he saw that I believe is the most magnificent. I think it's, it's what he heard. Because what he hears is God speaking about himself. What he hears is God telling Moses, and by extension the Israelites, and by extension us, who he is. And isn't that one of the biggest questions we, we try to answer in our lives? Like, like, what does God want from me? Who is God? And here in, in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5, we get to hear God speak about who He is. And so He says this. It starts in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so, so what we find here is God's revelation about himself. And I, I think this is helpful because we don't have to wonder about God's character. We don't. We, we, we don't have to wonder what his intentions are because we don't have to wonder if his heart is for us because he has very clearly in these verses proclaimed that. He has told us. So we get a rest in that. So, so knowing this about him only opens the door for us to feel his affections towards us. And I think that's where faith really begins to grow. And so, so let's not rush over uh, these seven things that God has just said about us, uh, said about himself to us. Uh, that number one, he says that the Lord is merciful. He's merciful. And so he uses this Hebrew word, uh, and, and the name is, is Rahum, uh, and, and it stands for sympathy, and it stands for compassion. And, and God uses uh, this word to describe a deep and a tender feeling of, of compassion. I mean, so, so sure, as, as, such as is aroused by the sight of, of weakness and compassion, I'm sorry, of weakness or suffering in those who he dearly loves. He looks at us and he says, I have compassion. I have um, mercy for you because I see you as Jesus will see us as sheep without a shepherd. As we are lost. And so, so this is the relationship that God describes over Israel and over us today. He's a perfect father uh, to his children. And it was no doubt that this compassion stirred deeply in his heart when he heard the cries of his children as they were in Egypt. Number two, it says the Lord is, is gracious. And, and this depicts a heartfelt response 
by someone who has something to give to one who has a need but is undeserving. But is undeserving. We, we, we get a sense of God's gracious strength in the scene of the burning bush as he promises Moses that he would stay with him and he would speak for him. And, and elsewhere in Scripture, we see that, that God is gracious and he will not turn away from those who repent or, or he won't uh, forsake his people no matter how rebellious they are. Number three, the Lord says, I am slow to anger. Uh, and he is patient even when our sin warrants his righteous anger. So, so this takes us down, uh, sometimes it takes us down a dangerous road where, where people will think that, that a God of love would never have an expression of anger. And, and the truth is, he does. He does. And guess what? He doesn't apologize for it. Nor should he have to. Because who are we to bring him into the court? So, so what happens in this moment is, is we can think, well, a loving God would never punish us. And the truth is, His anger burns against sin. Always does. And so He does have anger that burns, but, but when, when it finally shows itself, we know that it's not impulsive and that anger is not unjust, that, that it chastens the unrepentant who refuse His kindness. Number four, God says the Lord abounds in steadfast love. And he uses a word here, uh, the word hest, uh, and it describes a, a consistent and an ever faithful and a relentless and a constantly pursuing and, and a lavishing and an extravagant and an unrestrained and a one-way love that God has for his people. And, and I think it's one of the most significant words in the Bible that summarizes the entire history of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Um, that, that he has, he has steadfast love. Uh, it's God's undeserved selective affection by which he binds us to his people. And then we have number five, the Lord is faithful. And his word is, is dependable, it's trustworthy, it's credible. That, that is, that's how his people can come to know him, for his character never changes and his word always abides. And so, so, so we've been creating this case study as we've walked with the Israelites through the Exodus uh, of God's faithfulness, even when his people lost faith so many times so far, right? Uh, that, that he has been consistent. He has been truthful with his presence and his provision. That, that, that we spend time in these verses so that we can continue to build trust in his faithfulness as we are living with him in real time. You realize that, that the Israelites, as they are being depicted, uh, they don't have the hindsight of what we have. They are living these moments in real time. And so we can either ignore those experiences or we can look on them and use them to grow our faith as we try to trust God, knowing that He is incredibly faithful to them. And He remains, that, that He has never let them down. And so, so I think one of my questions this week to myself is, is why would He all of a sudden begin misleading the people that He claims that He loves? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. So, so now we get to number six, that the Lord forgives. And, and, and while he is slow to anger, the Lord is quick to forgive those who have turned away from him, who have broken their promises of faithfulness and, and fallen short of his glory by their sin. He still provides forgiveness. And then you have number seven, when he says the Lord is 
just. And that's important for us to remember. That the Lord is just. That, that while the Lord is full of compassion and grace and slow to anger and quick to forgive, He does not allow unrepentant sinners to go unpunished. All sin suffers wrath in the sight of a holy God. All of it. And so, uh, there, there will always come a day of, of reckoning. And, and so, for the, some of the Israelites, perhaps those guiltiest of the golden calf worship, uh, that reckoning came at the end of where we were last week with, with a sword and with a plague, and thousands died. And so, in summary, God's, God's character, uh, which, which we've already proven, which He'd already proven by His redemptive works, He now proclaims to us in words. So if you're like, I wonder who God is, he said, let me tell you. And so, so it was a promise to his people. Uh, not only had he been merciful and gracious and slow to anger and been just and abounding in steadfast love, but he would always be. He would always be these things. That Moses' response is mentioned in verse 8, and it says that, that Moses just bows his head in worship. And now, now here's, here's what I really want you to see this morning that at the Israelites' most ill-deserving moment, in the aftermath of of their rebellion, uh, God demonstrates an unfathomable depth of His mercy and grace, and He will renew once again the covenant that His people had broken. I'll do it again. He'll say, not only am I in love with you, but I will remain in love with you. And so, so... and this is, this is where we go when we get to, really, the, story, the message of, of this is told in um, verses 10 through 28. Um, but we're just going to go to verse 10 uh, real quick. And it says that it's, uh, this is where God reveals his heart. And he says this. He said, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and, and all the people among whom... You are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now, now as we travel further in, into their walk, what we find, uh, what we discover is that their faithfulness was once again very short-lived. Because what we hope, right? We want the good ending. And so we want God to, to renew His covenant. And it says, and they all decided to love God with all of their heart, and they please Him with all of their lives, and then everybody lived happily ever after. Now, the problem is, as we continue reading, that's not what happens, because their faithfulness is short-lived. In fact, uh, this generation of Israelites that we're talking about never entered the promised land. They never did. In fact, you can check that out as you read um, the rest of Deuteronomy into... um, I'm sorry, the rest of Exodus into Leviticus and Numbers, that, that through the remainder of their wilderness travels, despite these occasional high points of faith, uh, on the whole they continued in their unbelief, and in this process uh, their hearts hardened toward the steadfast, loving God. And, and so, so every, every generation since has had their own issues. Every single one. In fact, uh, the generations after uh, the Exodus still clung to their parents' idols from Egypt. And, and later, uh, they'll eventually grumble about not having a king. And they'll, they'll do um, what, what a lot of us do in life. They'll say, well, they have a king. Why can't we have a king? And, and Samuel will tell them, you don't want a king. I'm telling you, God said 
you don't want a king. Well, we really want a king. And so they get a king, and guess what? Not a good one, all right? And so they have Saul as a king, and then, and then they have this brief moment where, where you have King David and King Solomon and, and leads the Israelites into what really is considered their golden age, uh, their best period. And then as, as Solomon ends, you get in First and Second Kings uh, and First and Second Chronicles, it really just reads like a broken record because you have several bad kings and then you have a, a half-decent king, which, guess what? A half-decent king is never really a good king. Uh, and so, so you have these bad kings, then you have a, a half-decent king, and then you have more bad kings, and, uh, and each really are just revealing the heart of the nation, that their hearts are not God's. And yet, because of God's compassion, because He is slow to anger, He waited patiently for them to change. And, and what He does... and, and I don't know. I, I feel God gets a bad rap. Not that I need to defend him. He, he's pretty good about defending himself. But what happens is he looks at his people and he says, you have to repent. You have to turn from these evil ways. You, you have to give me your heart because when you give me your heart, that's the only place you're going to find satisfaction. And so he speaks through these prophets and, and Israel's history had proven that despite countless blessings and, uh, and countless uh, generations that, that mankind can't remain faithful to Him. And so, so God says, listen, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to dispose you and I'm going to send you back into captivity. And what's amazing about it is it seems that it, was, it could have been avoided. But God, being truthful to his word, the way a good father should be, says, if you don't repent, I'm going to send you back into captivity. And so, so even while the Israelites languished in their, their deserved Babylonian captivity, God remains steadfast to his covenant, and he continues to pursue his people, and he calls them back to himself through the prophets. And, and, and now, once again... Uh, they refuse to remain faithful to him, and, and God once again responds according to his love, and he renews a covenant with them again, and yet this time it would be different. And you get into, uh, really, the prophet Ezekiel, and, and he, you get to hear a glimpse of God's heart again. Um, and he would renew their covenant, and this time, uh, because the faithful God of mercy and grace and steadfast love in this new covenant, he would impart the seeds of his own character into the hearts of his people. He would remove their stubborn and unbelieving and hardened hearts of stone. And he says, I will replace them uh, with hearts of flesh that are tender and faithfully responsive to, to me. That, that he would put his own spirit within us and he would write his law on our hearts, as Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us. And, and so sometimes later, sometime later, uh, the Israelites returned to their homeland. They come out of their captivity with this promise of God's ringing in their hearts and they, they rebuilt their temple and they resettled their land and, and, and hoping to see a complete renewal of the nation inside and out. And, and yet that, that renewal was not ever quite complete. Because something, something was still missing. 
And, and so the Old Testament ends with this deep longing for God's best promises to be fulfilled. And, so, and then many years later, in fact, almost 400 years later, uh, in, a, in a small, seeming insignificant town of Nazareth, an angel appears to a virgin and says, hey, guess what? Your life is about to change forever. He says, you will, you will give birth to a son and he will be called Jesus and he is the son of God and uh, born into human history that he would bring the fulfillment of every promise that God made to Israel. He would be the fulfillment of that. He would be the way we have hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. He would be the fulfilling promise of everything we've longed God to do and Mary seems to know the significance of this, and she knew the promises by heart and how uh, they were founded upon this unchanging character of God's steadfast love. And, and so she sang, and we're going to come back on uh, December 20th, and we're going to spend some time in, uh, in, in the song that erupts from her. Um, but, but she says this, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And what she's doing is essentially regurgitating a song that she's been singing her whole life. That comes out of Psalm 103. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to the, on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant. And so each week as we've been walking with the, the Israelites, we've been talking about what's our, what's our better promise, right? What do we get that's better than what the Israelites get so that when we get to heaven, we can look at them and be like, ha, 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 guess what? We got something better. Uh, no, you don't do that. That's, thank you for laughing at that really lame joke, James. Um, and so, so, so what we get out of this covenant is Jesus would be the new and better Moses. He would be the redeemer of his people. He would be the mediator of this promised new covenant. He himself is the glorious revelation of God's abounding, steadfast love. That he enters the scene full of grace and full of truth. And from him we've received what the Bible says is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Fine, we can, we can start wrapping this up. So, so I told you, toward the end of our time, we're going to go Titus 3, right? I did say that, right? I, I think I did. All right, so Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you look for Titus, it's toward the, the back of your Bible. If you can't find it, just listen, all right? So, so here's, here's what I, uh, Titus uses a passage um, where he presents Jesus as the very appearance of God's loving kindness. Uh, he reminds us of God's steadfast love revealed to Moses on this mountain that, that he appears to none other than, than we who were foolish and wayward and reminding us of the adulterous Israelites and their deserved captivity. And, and he renews us and he washes us by the Holy Spirit uh, just as God had promised through, through Ezekiel. So we go here, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated and hating one another. Now, okay, apart from Christ, that's an incredibly depressing testimony. Okay? Incredibly depressing. Because it, that has no hope, does it? Now, in Christ, we get to, in a way, brag about how wretched we were because it shows the mercy and the grace of God and the love of God that He would redeem what seems to us to be completely unredeemable. And that's where verse 4 comes in. I love this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so so hear, me, hear me when I say this. I, I really hope that you're not confused by it because I think this is so very important. We are not saved by our mere resolve to good behavior. We're not. We are not. We cannot be saved by mere resolve to good behavior. We are saved by the mercy of God, by His grace to renew us. And Jesus not only forgives our sin, but He also cleanses us and He gives us new hearts by the Holy Spirit. And, and this, is, this is what we call regeneration. This is, this is the new birth of the Christian. Uh, John Piper says it this way, that, that new birth happens because Jesus came into the world as the kindness and as the love of God and He dies for sins and He rises again. And make no mistake, our salvation is on Christ alone. And so, so the old heart was like stone, and it was hard, and it was unchanging, uh, and it was like the stiff necks of the Israelites in the wilderness, but this new heart is a flesh, and it's tender, and it's responsive in faith to God, and the old heart loved sin, and like the Israelites longing to return to Egypt, but this new heart longs for God alone, and the old heart has, was alive to sin and dead to God, but this new heart is dead to sin and alive to God. And at the end of all of this, guys, this is great news. This is great news. This should stir our affections for our Heavenly Father because He has looked at us and He says, I will create the covenant. I will establish it. I will make the way for it to be fulfilled. And I think at the end of, of this great news of, of, of whether or not we're, is this question of, of whether or not we're willing to trust in Christ and enter into this sustaining covenant with our Heavenly Father. We, we live in a society that we don't care about our word near enough. That we're willing to break agreements too easily. And so, so the Bible cre gives us a word 
And it's called covenant. And the intention is that it is unbreakable. Unbreakable. And so, so are we willing to submit to Him every part of ourselves for the glory of His name? I mean, make no mistake, trusting in Jesus requires that you surrender every competing hope. Every one of them. And for the Israelites, it was, it was this call to abandon the worship of any other God and to entrust their lives to the one true God. And for us, it's very similar. Except God has fulfilled the covenant for us. God has established it and God sustains it in Jesus on our behalf. And, and so, so for each of us, I think it means that we would trust His promise of forgiveness and not work to try to pay off our own debts. And, and it means trusting His cleansing and not hiding in shame. And it means clinging to God's steadfast love and His grace upon grace to us as have made available in Jesus as our only hope. And as He is our only hope, He becomes our only song. He becomes the anthem of our hearts. That we care about our role as husbands and wives because we cherish Jesus above all. We, we care about our roles as fathers and mothers because we cherish Jesus above all. We care about our jobs as, as employers and employees. We, we care about our roles as children. We care about our roles as friends. We care about our roles as citizens in, in the United States of America because we cherish, cherish Jesus above all the other things. And the tension we feel in our lives in this moment is because I think maybe we're not willing to give him all of that. And so it becomes a matter of trust, right? It becomes a matter of faith. And at its root is these things. Do I believe in these seven things that God has said about himself to us? Do I believe He's faithful? Do I believe He's merciful? Do I believe He's gracious? Do I believe He's patient with me? Do I believe He is abounding in steadfast love? Because it's easy to sit here today and be like, yeah, that sounded great. I'm all, I'm all for that. But in the hardness of life, can we run to that? Can we run to those promises? Can we cling to a Heavenly Father who loves you so much that in your worst moment, He sends Jesus, and in your best moment, which by the way, isn't that great to begin with, He sends Jesus. So God ends up being our only remedy for our idolatry. He is. Jesus becomes the only solution to, to putting sin to death. So my prayer is that we would be a people who, A, would spend time with God long enough to know these things to be true about Him. And then, 
then B, we would be the kind of people willing to walk with him as he walks us through our own wildernesses, as he carries us through our own fears and confusions and these moments where we, where we have to wait for his daily bread to be delivered. And then C, I hope we would be a kind of people that as we experience the lavish and extravagant love of God, we would make it our life's mission to let other people know about it. Lights just turned off. Somebody's telling me, wrap it up. So let's do that. I love you guys. This week, we're going to love God. Bye. Let us pray. As we pray, let me, let me first make a couple of things available to you. We'll have some people over to this side, and if you need prayer this morning, we long to pray with you. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, I, I, I plead with you to not be afraid to ask questions. We, we long to celebrate our biggest celebrations here when people who are far from God find life in Jesus. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we love you and we thank you. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you've made a way where we could not have made a way. We thank you for your son in whom we find our forgiveness of our sins and we find our purpose for living. So Father, I pray you would awaken our spirits that we may long to please you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.
Have a blessed week. We will see you next week at the park. Hope you guys have a blessed week. You're dismissed.